So we are going to do just very quickly, we're going to start with um, a review of what we have looked at in the book of Joel so far. Um, last week we covered Joel. We know the author, obviously, the author is an, a given. And who was Joel, as far as we know? Somebody of somebody, okay, Pethuel or whatever. I, yeah, yeah. So quite honestly, the only thing that we really can, you know, grab hold of tightly with this man is that God used him to give this word to us. And if you stop to think about it, this was just apparently he was kind of a nobody prophet, right? Just doing his own thing, minding his own business, and God came to him with this vision. Can you imagine, in my mind, waking, semi-waking in the middle of the night to a vision or a dream or a word from God by the power of the Spirit and having all this historical information laid out before you? Can you imagine how life-changing that would be for you as an individual? I mean, really, put yourself in his shoes. I'd be going, whoa. Yeah, like, wow. And first of all, probably even comprehending a lot of it would have been real difficult for him in his time. But yet he, he understood a lot of it. And why is that? What is chapter 1 all about? What was your theme in chapter 1? Uh, and you said it was called? Your title? Okay, Invasion of Locusts. So when we did that, when we looked at the locusts in chapter 1, what do we see is going on there? What is, what is the um, events that happen there? What has happened in... Is it literal locusts or is it something else? In chapter 1, it is literal locusts. What are the locusts doing in chapter 1? Okay, so they're having a literal plague of locusts upon their land in that time. The locusts have come and they're invading. And as they invade, what is the consequence of this invasion for the people? Okay. Okay, so no food and no sacrifices, ultimately. Um, the implication there also of the idea of everything withering and things rotting literally in the ground, what is that telling you about the, um, the environment of the, of the time also concerning things like rain? No rain, probably, right? So the rain is, is being held back. So what do we know about God and, and his sovereignty over things like the weather and the locusts and the so forth? What, what do we know about that truth? Okay, it does speak of judgment because when Israel was on their land, what did God say to them? What was their covenant with God? Right. Okay. And when he spelled it out in Deuteronomy 27, 28, he said to them specifically about the fruit of the womb and the fruit of the land and about things like the locust. He actually said, if you are disobedient, then I will do this. And he mentions the locust, right? When the locust came, 
did Israel have any other point of reference concerning the locust that they should have known it was also from God besides the covenant? Egypt. So these are, these are like you call markers. And when you're looking at books like the book of Joel, uh, one of the most important things that you can do for yourself is learn to find the identifying markers of certain time frames, right? And also the, uh, the secondary thing is to learn the qualities and characteristics of who God is, how he operates and how you know when it's the movement of God. Um, even in the book of Acts, I remember when uh, we were studying Acts or when we were studying Matthew even. The things that Jesus would do, they should be recognizable. As when Jesus was taken up and, uh, or was going to be taken up and he was back on the earth and he was walking amongst his disciples and presenting himself alive. At first he would present himself to them in a fashion that was unrecognizable to them and he did this on purpose. And the reason was he wanted them to come to recognize the work of God and the movement of God so that when he had departed, as he has for all of us today, that people would come to understand that they need to learn to recognize God by identifying markers. When you see the movement of God in your life, you should have such a close relationship and understanding about who your God is that you can say, oh my goodness, that's happening, that's God. Okay? So the same was true with Israel. God had presented himself in the days of the Exodus to a people who had not really known him before. Do you remember when Moses was about to lead them out? And he went back to God and he says, God, who shall I say that has sent me? And, he, and God said, tell them I am. And then he began to reveal to the people little by little. And you can see it in the writing of the Pentateuch. Who is God? Who is man? And who is man in relationship to their God? And so he systematically goes through those Pentateuch writings, explaining to humanity to, and to you and I today who our God is. Why? Because we need to know, I have identifiable markers. We need to know his characteristics and his attributes so that when we see the movement of God, we recognize it as being God or not, right? First John says that too. You have to, you, you need to learn to, to discern the spirits, as it says in First John. So in the, in, in the case that we are looking at here in Joel, Joel, the people that Joel is writing to, he is saying to them, look, the locusts have come. And I think it's really um, a powerful verse in verse 16. And if you did not highlight it and bold it and really make a point of it, I want you to circle the, those first two words in 16, has not. Because if you didn't catch the powerful impact of those two words, then you're going to miss everything else that's going on in that chapter. Has not starts a statement that then he follows verses from 16 to 20. And what does he reiterate? What does he press home to them? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. He starts out the book explaining what's going on in the land. The locusts have come. They've eaten all these things. It's dried up the fruit. Now there's no food. Now there's no crop. Now there's, because of that, there's no sacrifice, right? And then he goes, he goes from there to talking about what he wants them to do in response. And what is their response to be? 
return to me, wail and weep and um, uh, mourn over these things. Now, that should be for the people of Israel a very big trigger word. When God says to you, you need to mourn, you need to wail, you need to weep. He is saying you need to repent. There's a repentance. And if he's telling you you need to repent, what have you just been told? You have, that you're sinning. You have been sinning before me. That great relationship with me is broken. You need to turn around and come back. Do we see that same statement repeated in chapter 2? And in chapter 2, how does he say it? Uh-huh. And what does he tell them to do in response to all the things that are going on there in verse 12? Return to me with all your heart. So he makes it very, very clear at this point between the, these two chapters that we've looked at that there has been a, a departure from walking with God and a departure from righteous living and a departure from obeying the precepts, which in essence, they break the, their covenant with God by doing all these things, right? And so as he does all this and he says, I want you to reper- return because you've You've fallen into sin, and I want you to proclaim this solemn assembly and cry out to the Lord. And then he says, alas, the day of the Lord is near. Now, why would he drop verse 15 right in the middle of, this is what you've done wrong, this is where you've gone wrong, this is what's going on in the world right now because of what you've gone wrong gone and done, right? I want you to repent. And and then all of a sudden he says, alas, the day of the Lord has come. What has that got to do with anything? Why does he drop in Thanksgiving or Christmas in the middle of every, you know, another hall, another event, not, not a holiday. I shouldn't probably use those as a thing, but you know what I mean? It's like he's dropping in another, another thing in the middle of a flow of conversation about this is what's happening to you. And this is why it's happening. And this is how you can you can fix it. This is how you can stop it. This is how you can repair the damage that's gone on between you and God. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's a day of the Lord coming, right? And then he goes to verse 16. He says, has not. Now, what is he talking about there? What is he, in essence, saying to the people about what's going on? Yes. Very good. That is exactly right, Lisa. Does, does everybody catch that? Remember, I took you to Numbers, uh, I think it was 2319, where, where it says, is, it, is God a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should not fulfill? Does God not speak and then not act? I gave you that verse as kind of an extra last week that it wasn't in your homework, but it came to my mind when I was doing my homework, and I thought, that is exactly what he's saying in verse 16. Has not, has not all these things happened? And who told you that these things would happen? God already told you this. The covenant, when you entered onto the land, that you said, yes, Lord, all these things, we shall do it. You're not doing, Right? And he's saying, you have broken, and that's why you're seeing the locust upon the land. Yes. Do you think that the Jews got it finally at the Holocaust? I mean, do you think they understand that they had been scattered from their land and judgment? What do you guys think? 
Okay, and and why? Okay, on the whole, particularly if you're speaking nationally as a whole, I think they're still exactly like as Susan said. They're still under the veil. Their eyes are still closed. What closes their eyes, by the way? Why are their eyes closed? That's right. The heart is closed. The, they have. They do not have a sensitivity toward. God, they have a ritual of religion, but not a relationship with their creator, right? And so they're in that place. But what we know is, what is the purpose of the coming of these end times that we're studying here? Okay, yes. And for those of you who have done some of the prophetic books, like our Daniel study, for instance, when you look at the the timeline of events that Daniel, for instance, lays out, and he starts with the Babylonian kingdom, and then he goes to the Medo-Persia, then he goes to Greece, then he goes to Rome. Then we have the church age in the middle, right? And we have a, a, a prophetic word of a coming revived Rome that's going to come back up. In the end of it, what happens to that revived Rome? It will be crushed. Do you see that what Jesus is showing us, what God is showing us through the book of Joel, that the ultimate end goal on this that God is showing us is that in the end, what is going to happen? That's when his kingdom will come. So what we can see big picture is there's a culmination of this occurring. There is a goal in mind, and the goal is for the bringing about of God's kingdom itself. We see this in, uh, let me look to see if I can find where it is. At the, um, nope, that's not it. Hold on. I thought it was in chapter one, at the end of chapter one. But I'm not seeing it there. Where's the one, where is the verse where he tells us that, uh, oh, I know it was in Obadiah. I got to go back another book. Remember at the end of Obadiah, which we're kind of we're looking at Obadiah and Joel together, and they're would you say that they're speaking about the same time frame, same events, right? And Obadiah, uh, the book is about that Edom will be cut off forever, right? It was all about Edom and how they're going to be taken care of. God is going to handle them. Now, is God against Edom or Obadiah or any one nation in particular? Or is he against all nations that are opposed to him? Yes. He is an equal opportunity judger, <laughs> right? Uh, Romans teaches that to us. Lisa, would you like to give us a little excerpt from that that's fresh on your mind since you're teaching that? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, all have sinned. All have come under um, God's curse. Right. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it says that he literally says... Uh, that he will give to each man according to his deeds, right? Whether they be good or evil. And so God is, equal, he's an equal opportunity judge. <laughs> he's very fair. He's very impartial, right? And what he says to us is, there's a day coming. I will, in the book of um, Obadiah, I'm going to be judging Edom. But Edom is really used as an example. But he starts there, why? What is Edom's connection to Israel? Pardon? Okay, it is an adversarial one. And what was its root, its beginnings? 
they were brothers. It's very interesting to me that the one nation that God seems to keep uh, kind of signaling out or pointing out is the one that should have been his brother, should have been a familia, because if it was out of the same family, there should have been a, a family love, if nothing else, between these two. And yet, there was an animosity that began early on, right? And it really just depicts the fact that there is going to always be a tug of war uh, between the kingdom that God wants to establish and the kingdom that the world is seeking. Esau and the Palestinians. I didn't. I thought about that. I'm so sorry. I still need to type it up so that I can send it out. It's on, it's on a hard copy on, in my notes here, but that computer's long gone. <laughs> so I just, have to, I just have to have five minutes to... S- There's a picture. There you go. Okay. You guys would be happy with that, huh? Okay, I'll, I'll work on that. That's okay, but, but don't worry. I'll do it. <laughs> you can count on me. <laughs> okay, all right. So, but what happens with Edom now, Edom, what, why I brought this up about Obadiah, for instance, is because Obadiah talks about how God is going to utterly destroy Edom, right, because of its... Actions towards whom? Towards Jacob, your brother, right? He says it's because of the because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. Now, have you thought this through a little bit? Why is it that God is so protective of the, this animosity that's going on between Jacob and Edom? When people come against Israel and come against his people, right, God's people, why is that a problem? Okay, number one, there's covenant. So God has an obligation toward them, all right? But he has set them up to, to proclaim who he is to the world. There you go. You got it. Okay, so did, are you all catching that? that what she did is she made the switch from it being God being obligatory toward the people, Israel, as a nation and a people group. But, but the real reality is here, um, I think it's also very strongly expressed all through the book of Ezekiel. Be ashamed, O Israel, for your actions. Be ashamed of the way that you have behaved. You have, it's not for your sake that I will be doing these things, but Why? for my holy name, that I will vindicate my holiness before the world, because the whole purpose for Israel was that they would be a light to the world, that through them the world would come to know God, the God of Israel, and God himself, and be drawn into relationship with God, to see how loving he is, how compassionate he is, what a great provider he is, how he loves and takes care of us, and how holy he is, and how righteous he is, right? So if that was their designed role, and they didn't do it, and there was um, this situation that went on between Jacob and Esau, the the two nations, Edom and Israel, and so there became this tip. And as the world is watching this, what's happening then in the 
midst of all this with God in his glory. It's being diminished, right? And God is literally saying then to them, because of violence to your brother Jacob, well, it's not really about Jacob per se, but behind it, what is the real issue? If people are coming against Jacob, who are they actually coming against? They're actually coming against God. Because if God is, says, these are my people, this is what I'm doing with them, and who are you, old man, to say to the potter, what are you doing to, with the clay? You don't get to make the plan, and you don't get to make the decision as to who I put in certain positions in life. You don't get to decide who's the president all the time. You know, you vote, but your vote doesn't always, you know, result in what you'd like. But God is the one that raises up kings and puts them down. And you and I need to operate in a world where we submit and bow our knee before a holy God who is the sovereign over the universe. He has a plan in everything that he does, right? It does not mean we support evil. It means we support good. But we also have to recognize the movement of God in things. To come to recognize uh, the world through a perspective of the sovereign God of the universe, that is operating in it, and that ultimately has a plan. And what is his ultimate goal? According to, to Obadiah, look at the very last verse. He says, And the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Ultimately, what God is doing is bringing about his kingdom on earth. Right? Okay, so let's do a timeline. Just kind of give ourselves a point of reference on the things that we're looking at so far. Um, I'm not sure if I can. I guess I can do it this way. I'll put it way up here. All right, we've got a timeline. We've talked at this point, as for review, about the idea of the locust that gets introduced in Joel chapter 1. And we said earlier that they have a point of reference to recognize the locust is a movement from God because of their experience with who? Egypt. With Egypt. So their first experience with who is their God was seen through Egypt and the, the locust plague there. Interesting that God had already established that. So then the next, the next thing we see then is here we are in Judah, in the book of Joel. And we are again seeing what? Locust, correct? So that's on your timeline. There's two points of reference that you are familiar with and that can kind of anchor you to get you started, right? We're going to come all the way down here, though, and we know that um, the the ultimate goal of God is the establishment of God's kingdom, right? We saw that in Obadiah, and what was the verse, 23? The very last one in Obadiah? 21. Okay, so in Obadiah 21, we see God's ultimate goal is an establishment of his kingdom on earth, Correct. But before you get to that kingdom, there's going to be a time frame that we're talking about right now. And what are we, what are we calling it? What has been the focus of this author's um, message in, throughout the whole book of Joel? What is the main theme of the book? Okay, it's the day of the Lord. Now, you and I, as students of the Word of God, 
the only way that we are ever going to really grab hold of the prophetic books and have a real understanding about the end times is if we come become very familiar with those identifying markers of or about the end time. You have to be able to click in and say, oh, that's that sounds like the end time. Now, can it sometimes be an earlier event and it be somewhat equal to the end? Okay, so then what must you do to determine whether it's speaking about the end time or something that's happened before? What's going on around it? Okay, the context of the book that you're studying in. Uh, a secondary question, uh, particularly I see this in the book of Isaiah, which this is one of the reasons I avoid it so much. <laughs> but can sometimes, can there be sometimes a double meaning or a double uh, application of things? Yes, and that's where things get a little bit murky for us. Um, so how do you handle that? When you see an event and you know that that's something that sounds just like the end times, so you, you're good there, you got that down, but then you're going, yeah, but I wonder, did that happen already also, right? So how do you handle that when you come across questions like that? As a student, what would you maybe do or how would you... At least settle your mind about it. I always see that as a sign of true prophecy because there's a now, now relevance, but there's also a future prediction. Very good. Okay, so you just have in, look, we talk about pillars that you never violate your known doctrines. So there's one of your little pillars in your brain is that there is generally a foreshadowing and then a reality, right? And we have we not talked about that over and over and over. When it comes to end time events, there are many situations where you see God foreshadowing. Why is it that, for instance, what we're seeing in the book here of Obadiah and in Joel so far, we see the, this um, locust plague, for instance. So what is the purpose of a locust plague? Yes, okay. Wow. And, and is that not exactly what you saw said in here? God is saying through the prophet, so here's this prophet minding his own business, probably laying in bed at night, maybe a quick a prayer before he goes to bed at night, right? And he's about to slumber off, and then God gives him this word, either through vision or dream, and it doesn't tell us. But what we know is all of a sudden God gives him this end-time vision, and, he's, and he makes it a reality to this man, Joel, that just as what you are seeing right now has been an utter devastation. And then he, but he opens in chapter two and he says, in comparison, what does he say about it? Oh my goodness. He, he magnifies that there has never been anything like it and there will be never be anything like, like it again. Um, does anybody remember doing the book of Daniel and looking in chapter 12, 1, 2, and 3? If someone would flip over to that, I just want to read that real quick. And she may have us go look at that again yet, uh, but it doesn't hurt to look at it several times. It's a, great, it's a really great verse. But if you ever want to see um, some, some of those 
repetitive kind of statements or words that are familiar and, and begin to link them with certain time frames for you, this is one of them. Something that has happened that is, has never happened before and will never happen again. So go, go to Daniel, where we see Daniel is speaking about end-time visions that he's had in the book of Revelation, right? Or, or about the, re, the Revelation, sorry, that was, that's coming. Okay, uh, Martha. One through three. Wow. Okay, so again, what did he, he say, what did Daniel say about the end times, the day of the Lord? And that sounds very familiar, right? So let's just put up here, the day of the Lord. It is one of the woes. <laughs> it's a woe, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There are three. I know, the day of the Lord. Okay, so we got the day of the Lord then on here. So now we have a couple of, what happens before the day of the Lord that we know is significant? Who comes? Yes, the church age. And, and in order for the church to be birthed, who came first? Jesus came first. So we have Christ. We have the, the church age that followed. And um. So the, those are pretty good markers that you can put down on that. This day of the Lord, by the way, just so that those who are not as familiar with the terminology going on in there, the day of the Lord, at least in a portion of it anyway, and, you, and you're going to be able to expand your day of the, war, the Lord later. So I just want to let you know that the day of the Lord is not only relegated to this time of deep destruction, but for right now, that's the information we have, and so we're going to hold on to that. But tell me what else the day of the Lord might, it has been called for many years by many people. The end times and, and the tribulation. <laughs> okay, so end times, let's put day of the Lord, you might want to put the end or end times. But actually, end times began at the cross, just so you know that. End times, I'm just going to put an arrow because Jesus spoke about it. These are the end times. And we also have the day of the Lord, and we have tribulation. I'm going to put this over here. Whoa, one of the woes so far anyway, right, in the one that we just looked at. Okay, so that gives us a pretty nice little points of reference on things, and we're going to try to help uh, plug in just a couple more points on that timeline. So we see the locusts that came in with Egypt in the days of Egypt. We see locusts now in the days of Joel in chapter 1, which we looked at last week. Uh, one, uh, somebody gave me a title for a uh, theme on chapter 1, Invasion of Locusts. Um, let me see what I have in here. Um, <laughs> yeah, 
I, mine is way too low. I like yours much better, Brenda. Invention of the locust is nice and concise. It was you that gave me that, right? It's very nice and concise. Um, there were quite a few possibilities for titles in there. One of the major emphasis in there is a, is the subject of the repentance that he's drawing them to, right? So one word caught my attention. That was the word awake. What did I tell you last week the definition of awake meant? Do you remember? Awake and cry out to the Lord. What does the awake mean? Is it a nice little gentle nudge where someone just shakes your shoulders and says, hey, time to get up. Time to No, what, what was it? Wake up! <laughs> it was a. It was actually a sudden and violent kind of uh, of a sudden awakening. That was what the definition meant in the original language. It was something that would shock you into alertness. So um, this cry to awake means now wake up. You're sleeping, right? You're you're missing the point here. You're missing your day of opportunity. And you are in danger of being one who will be judged, as I am demonstrating to you judgment is all about. And so he says, awaken. Um, in chapter 1, awaken and do what? Then in response, once you wake up and you realize, oh my goodness, what's going to wake them up, by the way? What should be waking them up in chapter 1? <laughs> the locust invasion. Again, when you, when you see the work in the hand of God... What should you do? Wake up. Okay. Are there demonstrations of that for us today? <laughs> That's exactly right. And who's in control of the volcano? Only God. Only God. And I know there are people that would hate it if they hear us say that. They would be angry because they would feel that we are being judgmental. And who are we condemning? I think it's a, it's a wake-up call for the whole world. I don't think it's just for the Hawaiian Islands, right? I believe that the volcanoes erupting is a picture for us to look at that and to see the power and the destruction that can occur. Yes. Yes. Did you? Was it? Yes, yes. It was. And it, see, again, when you're studying God's word and you're starting to pick up on truths and all of a sudden you go to God's word and all of a sudden you are confirmed in your spirit about what you're seeing going on. And you're going, again, God's word is coming true. He said it would happen in this way, did he not? And remember, even in Matthew, now Jesus doesn't talk about the earthquake so much, but what does Jesus say is going to increase? And there will be wars and rumors of wars, right? And he goes on to explain. So in the book of Matthew in chapter 24, Jesus also gives us indicators of things that we can be looking for around us. Now, we've always had wars, but apparently there's going to be some massive kinds, something beyond what we normally deal with the little the little things that we handle and we put it, put out the flames and we all settle in again that's not going to happen as the end time comes it's going to be wars and rumors of wars all, in abundance 
Oh, that's fantastic. See, for those of us who know the Word of God, he says that every language and every tongue will know. Yes. Amazing. That's amazing. Okay, so in chapter 1, I had, concerning the invasion of the locusts, then I would simply add on that, awake and cry out to the Lord. It makes it a longer um, title, but I think it completes the thought because the whole purpose in this flow of thought uh, concerning the day of the Lord, he's saying, look, pay attention. Here's your identifying marker. Do you see the locusts on the land right now? What did God say he would do? And what has God done? Therefore, as he closes out then... Um, chapter 1, he, he says that in verse 16. Has not all these things happened? And God said they would. When he went into covenant with you, he said, if you don't obey me, then I will curse. If you will obey me, I will bless. And now that you're seeing the cursings come, and you know this is a curse because historically, you saw from the days of Egypt when I first introduced myself to you, you saw who I was and how I worked. Now, you should recognize this day of my coming, the, my visitation of judgment upon the land, and you should be waking up and crying out to the Lord. Okay? I always get a sense when I read these books that, you know, God is going to force us to recognize that he is who he said he was in book one. Yes. He is the creator, whether we have chosen it or not. Right. Right. You, yeah, the, when you're talking about the elements, you're looking at the power of the ocean or the power of the volcanoes or the power of, of you know, uh, the wind and the rain and the sleets and the snows and the, I mean, all the things that we have going on in the elements in particular, those are, are beyond the control of humanity. Man cannot control those. And so I even think that the arrogance of those who would deny that things like volcanic eruptions is the hand of God just shows that their, their um, lack of training in the word of God and about who their God is, who is in control of the elements, God, right? Well, when half of California burned, it seems like last year. Yes. And they were, they were saying global warming and uh -huh. they would never say God, and that turned out some of them, yeah, yeah. And certainly, though, you know, it's like, uh, if you think about the, even the, the uh, fires, who could put out the fires if they so chose? Who's in control of the rain? God. Had he wanted to put out the fires, what could he have done? But instead, instead of sending the rain to put the fires out, what did he send? He sent the wind in order to spread the fire. So... You know, people can say, oh, well, but a man started it. Well, but who's in control of it? Have you ever been in a scenario in your life where you or someone you love probably should have been dead but weren't? Because some little quirky thing occurred. I remember when uh, we were in Germany and there was the, um, they had the aircraft flights that would go over and do, I can't remember, the something birds, bluebirds or whatever they're called. And they would do all these fancy Aerial things, right? 
and well they well there was a big crash and the airplane came down wiped out the whole the whole group and of course this was where we were stationed we had just come from church that morning we were planning to go out there to be at the airfield that day and for some unknown reason i just believe it was god's divine intervention on our part a friend that we had not had a chance to spend any time with said hey well what it's going to be too crazy out there. It's going to be really hot, and there's going to be a lot of people. Why don't you guys just come to the house, and we'll we'll put hot dogs on or something. We hadn't even planned dinner. We all had to stop at the grocery store on our way over to their house. So we did that. We went over to their house and spent the day. On our way home, we were stuck in all the traffic because of the the dozens of ambulances that were going by and all the people that had been either killed or seriously seriously injured out there on the flight we had the schools shut down that week we had grief counselors and pastors going everywhere all over the base to help people deal with this huge tragedy that greatly affected the whole base and i'm thinking that was good god's divine intervention i should have been there we would have been there right we would have probably been right out there on the front line and guess who would have been hurt or killed right? And yet God for, I mean, the quirkiest thing, which should have never happened, and it normally never did happen, but out of the clear blue, we had this happen. This is God. You've got to look for the movement in, of God and the, and the working of God in your life, the supernatural interventions that he gives. At the same time, you have to be realistic and look at the world and say, these things that are happening, these major um, weather patterns or these major uh, catastrophes. Do you remember last week it's, we learned that the, these calamities that come, it's God who creates the calamities and that God that also brings the blessing, right? So here we have that displayed for us in the book of Joel. We see, alas, for the day of the Lord is near. So what is he actually saying to them in the middle of saying to them, the invasion of the locusts, awake and cry out to the Lord, because why? What's coming? The day of the Lord is coming. And then he opens verse 16. He says, has not, basically he's saying, has not God done exactly what he said he would do? Has he not brought the, the cursings as he said he would for disobedience? Did he not do that? And there, are they living through it in that moment? They are, aren't they? And so talk about a reality for them. They should have gotten the full picture in that moment. There should have been a national revival uh, just erupt overnight for that, those people at that time. Okay, so that's in chapter 1. And then he goes on then after he establishes their point of reference of saying, do you see God? Do you see God doing this? Do you see that this locust is from the Lord? You've had your historical experience with it. It's one of the first things God did to explain himself to Israel as a nation. He sent locust as a sign and as a judgment. So they had that experience. They had that understanding of who he was. And now they were in the midst of that very same kind of judgment being poured out upon them. And God is saying, wake up. I want you to wake up and I want you to repent. So Joel 2 then starts with this thing where he says, um, uh, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for, now he goes back to that same subject and he says what? The day of the Lord. So when you did your theme for chapter 2, what do you see is going on in chapter 2 on the whole? 
It opens with the statement about the day of the Lord, and then what follows that? Return to me again. So it's almost like a repeated pattern, isn't it? Chapter 1, he, he says, the locusts are here. Return to me, for the day of the Lord is near. And don't you see that God has done everything he said he would do? And now he goes to the next verse, and then he says, okay, now next step. Next step is, guess what? The day of the Lord again. He goes back to the subject of the day of the Lord. So chapter 2 on the whole, how did you title that particular chapter? It is coming. Okay. Okay, so you, you did exactly what I did too. So, is coming or surely it is near. You could use either one of those phrases, whichever you do. And then he says, for it is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Now, when he speaks about the the um the events that are going on there does he give um does he direct you to under to have an understanding of exactly who it is that's behind the day of the lord yes, yes. and how do how does he do that and what does he say i love that it, i mean if that does not make it clear who says it's my army the Lord does. The Lord said, it is my army. And concerning my army, wh what? Uh-huh. Wow. Now, strong is he who carries out his word, God's word. So in other words, God's word is going to be accomplished. How does that fit with what we just saw in chapter 1? Did he kind of say the same thing there? Well, go back to verse 16 and the first two words. Has not. Now, he doesn't go beyond that. He says has not and then explains to you what all is going on. But the has not tells you just as God spoke, he did. Just as God warned, he is accomplishing. So in Joel chapter 2, it kind of does the same thing again. Only this time, he moves forward to out of the day that they are observing in the moment, which is a, a locust plague. And by the way... How does he compare the, the days of what they're going through, which are total devastation and total disruption in their lives? How does he compare that to what's going to happen in the day of the Lord in, in Joel 2? And it's nothing in comparison. Because in the day of the Lord, you think you guys are in a bad place right now with the locust plague and all your crops destroyed and there's not even any kind of a of a gift offering to the Lord that you can give because there is no produce. He says, you just wait. In the day of the Lord, there has never been anything like it, nor will there ever be anything like it in the future. It is, the, the contrast is like black and white, day and night. They, the contrast in it. So you're just getting a taste of the day of the Lord. For those of you who've done some um, uh, in times studies, what kind of things happen in the day of the Lord besides just the locust? We do look at the locust as one thing, but are there other devastations going on? Yeah, wa the water is wormwood, right? It gets wormwood. Oh, man, sores on the bodies. Fire. Fire. 
amazing. So the contrast is you're going from one single locust plague in your day right now, and you are totally put under by it. There's total devastation for you and your people, but it is nothing in comparison to what's coming ahead in the day of the Lord. And the amazing thing to me was I remember when we studied that and talked about the, the, the islands are moved out of their place and there's all these volcanoes and there's all these uh, earthquakes in particular, earthquake after earthquake after. Remember there was that repeated pattern about the earthquake? And yet w- with the people, how did they respond? Yes, they shook their fists basically in the face of God and they would not repent. Doesn't that just blow your mind? That's the masses. But is there some good news in the book of Joel? What does Joel tell us? There will be survivors and there will be a remnant. And the ones who survive, the ones who will be, as we call them, the remnant, what is it that they do that gives them this salvation, even in such a horrible day? Okay, they rend their hearts and not their clothing. And there you go. That's the key here in this particular chapter. He's saying your salvation is calling upon the Lord. What did he say in chapter 1? Awake and do what? Cry out to the Lord. So the crying out to the Lord is in the present, but it's also where? In the future. So it shows you that the, I, the concept of the crying out unto the Lord is a perpetual thing that should be going on generation by generation, right? It's not something that you only do at the end when things are all f- just falling apart. You are to repent. Stop where you are right now. So we're talking about right here. He's saying in the book of Joel, repent, right? And then he's saying also in the day of the Lord, repent. What does that show you about God? I know it. That is amazing to me. The long-suffering of God is really demonstrated when you put it on a map like this because you see he keeps calling them to repentance. He keeps saying, I want you to come back to me. I want you to call on my name. And when people will call on God's name, how does God respond? Mm -hmm. What do we see about him in verse 13? Isn't that amazing? Tell me, what, what do you know about this idea of relenting of evil? Because that's an interesting little phrase in there, right? What is he talking about, relenting of, of evil? Is God evil? Does God do evil? Okay. Okay, good job. So it has to do with God's... Um, judgment, the idea of evil coming upon them, it's the idea of the, of the cursing coming upon them. That does not mean that God is evil in, in his cursing, it is not, and he is not evil in his judgment, right? His judgment is what? Holy, righteous, good, right. <laughs> yes? And how much did he, how much um, opportunity even did he, did he allow in that? Do you remember the bargaining that went back and forth between uh, him and 
Abraham, and Abraham said, But Lord, if there be 50 in the city, will you still bring judgment? Well, no, for 50, I will not. Well, what about for 40? Well, what about for 30? Well, for what about for 20? You know, in the, even for 10, for that matter, even for one. And as a matter of fact, when, when he brought the judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah, how many people came out? 10? Not even 10. And yet, did God protect the ones who would come out, who would be obedient to his voice? Even if, and as we know, amongst them, there was even some who were not truly believing because they weren't being obedient, right? What happened to the one who was not obedient and turned around and looked after being told not to? She became a pillar of salt. So what you saw in that pictorial imagery of that storyline is that although she was being obedient in the moment, she wasn't wholeheartedly obedient. It reminds me, does it not, you, of our kings that we've been studying in this study that we're in here of kings and prophets. Some of the, sometimes the kings were obedient, but then what happened later? Then they weren't, right? So what kind of a... As a matter of fact, when the scripture talks about them, there's always a comparison to the heart of David, right? And what would they say about these kinds of kings? In the Kings and Prophets study we just did, they would say about their hearts, their hearts were what? Right. They did evil and stuff. And they were, their heart was not fully committed to the Lord as David, their father, right? As David, the who was the typeset that was supposed to be an imitation. David was not perfect, but David still and yet was one who had a heart of repentance and a heart of submission before God. And as king, therefore, God said, you are, you are a man after my own heart. Because even if you mess up and even if you fail me on, a, on occasion, still you always turn back and you repent. You recognize your sin and you confess it and you bow before me. This is what God wants from us. This is what God wants from humanity. So in our book of Joel, we see him start out with that. In chapter 1, he says, Awake and cry out to the Lord, which the implication in there with all those words that we looked up had to do with mourning and lamenting, right, and, and weeping over your sin. And turning back and returning to the Lord. Now, Joel 2 is doing the same thing. So, Joel 2, theme is that he is, in fact, coming. So, your title for the book is The Day of the Lord. And chapter 2 says, it is coming, or surely it is near. That's a funky word. Near? It is near? How long ago was it that he said this? All the way back here, in the days of Joel, in the days of the king kings of the north and south, still upon the land of Israel. How long was Israel um, not even a nation about? Do you remember? Oh, from the, from about, about a thousand, I think it's 1,000 years. Am I wrong on that? About a thousand years. Yeah, until 1948. 1948 is when Israel was put back on their land. Yeah, so all the way from, basically from the days back here, when it lost its thing, we had Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. You might be right. It might be 2,000 years. Right, okay, 2,000. I should have looked that up before I asked that question, right? <laughs> Stupid me. <laughs> I can't, oh, well, what can I say? 
just goes to show you, right? Okay, so 2,000 years. So you have at least 2,000 years from the days when this was written, when he says, look, I want you to repent. And yet they had all this time, and, and we see ups and downs throughout all the generations of people following God and not following God. And the compassion of God never fails. It is new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I love that. All right, we could sing. Right? No, we won't sing. <laughs> okay. All right, now let's go and look then. Let's try. So surely it is coming. The day of the Lord, surely it is coming. Um, and I, I chose the emphasis upon the fact that God is faithful to his word as the secondary part of my title. But, but someone else gave a different title, and it was good too. What was it? Surely it's coming, or it is coming, and then what else was in your title? Even now, repent. Oh, that's good. I like that one, too. Even now, repent. Even now, repent. Actually, that's a nice repeated pattern here. I kind of like that. Maybe I'll change mine. <laughs> See, it's, I know it. Well, you know, it's a work in progress. I can't tell you how many titles I've given these chapters and these th these things to to stay focused, if you, if you switch your focus from one subject to another subject, all of a sudden your titles change. It's really easy to do that because there's so many good things going on in this book. And even though it's, a, it's really a small book and kind of compact, that it is loaded with points. Um, I had put um, on my, po as a possibility, as strong as he to, who carries out his word. I kind of like all three of them together even, right? Even now repent because strong is he who carries out his word. We could add up here, awake and cried out the Lord, and you could add up here, has not. How about that? We'll have three titles for each chapter. That's pretty big. That's pretty, but it certainly does condense the flow of thought for those three chapters, does it not? Yep. That's, yes, it is in verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very strong, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Love that verse. That verse to me is like so powerful in this book. Who can endure it? And that's the warning that he's giving to them. Okay, so <coughs> chapter 3 will be next week. Um, just as a um, starting point, what have we titled chapter 3 at this point? What do we see going on in chapter 3? And this is review from what we did last week. Okay. Okay, I'm just going to put judging of nations, and this is not a good title, but it, it starts. Judging of nations and restoring, actually it's probably... Not going to be far from its final. Restoring um, of who? Judah and Jerusalem. Judah and Jerusalem and, um, okay. Yes, it is. It's the beginning of it right now, isn't it? So for next, for, uh, next week, that's where we're going to go next to, to develop our chapter. 
three, and we'll dig that out even more carefully. Okay, so let's go back to Joel 2, and let's work with our um, chapter theme. Again, here we go. The chapter theme is, It is Near. Uh, And I think I'll leave it at, at that. It could be all of these. It is near, even now repent, strong as he who carries out his word. But what we want to do is get into our paragraphs. In order to just really kind of meet out some of the information that's in each of those segments, because they're all so good. Um, Let's start with 1 to 11. Now, you could have broken this down even more. I actually started out breaking it down a lot more. I had verses 1 and 2, and then I had verse 3, and then I had 4 to 11, each as individuals. Well, then I saw that really collectively those could be 1 to 11 with another title on top. These books are a little tough because what is it, when you're titling historical works, what are you looking for? Events and people, people and events generally, in all, and or time factors, right? So the idea that it starts here, it is near, that's a time factor that's given that's of significant importance and in the message that's being given here. He's, he's putting a sense of urgency upon us saying, you, really, you don't know the time nor the hour, right? That's in another verse at another time. But he's, and therefore, you always need to operate under the assumption it is near. It could be soon. I have been listening to prophecy teachers um, pretty intently the last couple of weeks or so. It's been kind of fun getting back into the end time stuff and, and just refreshing my memory on the things that I know. But I cannot tell you how many of these prophecy teachers right now are really talking about the imminency of the coming of the Lord at this point in history. The things that have been fulfilled. One I listened to was a he's a, he's Jewish, a linguist, really really smart, knows the language inside and out. But he's a Christian, okay? So he's coming he's come to Christ, and um, he's he's also kind of a a buff on the history of Israel and on the uh, on science and that kind of stuff and math. He's really a big math. This guy's got a brain bigger than this room, right? Oh, I could look it up. Let me look it up at the end. It's, it's like, it starts with a P, Bash or Bosch or, anyway. Yeah, he's a new guy for me, and he's a little tough to listen to because I think he might have, I hate to say what he might have, but he's got something. He's like I was a month or so ago, coughing, hacking, coughing, hacking through, you know, all the time he teaches. It's really hard to listen to, but he's so smart. You can't stop. Okay, but he was talking about a pro- prophetic word that Jesus gave that's in the book of Matthew where he talks about the fig tree. So he goes back and in great detail, I think he's got a commentary for a brain. He gives all the history about Israel and how it's related to the fig tree and how even nationally today the fig tree is the symbol of Israel. And he, so he goes into Matthew, he pulls out a verse, he talks about the fig tree and how Jesus says, in the day that you see the leaves coming upon the fig tree, so shall you see the coming of the Son of Man. I think it's in chapter 24. So go beyond the first, which we're going to look at, I think, next week as well. So go in there and look, go read the whole chapter when you do it next week so you get the whole picture. But what he does is he then he take, breaks it down and he talks about if the tree 
is Israel or the, and the land, and the leaves are the people. And if symbolically, Jesus is saying, when you see the leaves coming back on the land, which we have, right, since 1948, he says, it is in that generation that we shall see the coming of the Son of Man. Isn't that mind-blowing to you right now? Think about that. What generation is that? That's us. In our generation, if his understanding of that prophecy is correct, and then he backs it up with a gazillion examples of the foreshadowing and the, tr and the reality fulfillment of things, just like we've been talking about how God always foreshadows and then he gives a real the reality that's coming. So we've had foreshadowings, for instance, of the, the day of the Lord in Judah's day with the locust plague. It's just one example of a foreshadowing. Uh, we think about Antiochus Epiphanes and the abomination of desolation. And, and he says in Matthew 24 also, just as there was that abomination that Daniel spoke of, it shall be in the end days. So we know that the, the coming Antichrist will commit also an act of abomination of desolation. So this man takes the fig tree and he says, in the day that you see the fig tree and the leaves coming upon it, so shall you see the coming of the Son of Man. Did he? Okay, so, and, and he's not the only prophecy teacher I've listened to that has said that, but he said it more concisely and with more backup. He took me to more scriptures and gave me more evidence that made me even more confident that what he's saying is, is probably true. And certainly, all you have to do is look in our world today historically at what's going on. Look at, the, look at how the governments are coming together. What's going on with Israel itself at, at this point in history? Where are we on the timeline of events? We are so close, guys. We are so close. Literally, it could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. The, the rapture, we could be taken out of here, and all these events are going to, boom, begin to unfold. Uh, wake up. Cry out to the Lord. He is coming. It is very near. Even now you can repent, is what he's saying. And is this message not a message for us today? If you cannot take what we are looking at, the book of Joel, and why people would look at the book of Joel and go, oh, that's just Old Testament. Why they would do that and not just, I mean, I want to take them by the shoulders and shake them and say, are you sleeping through this whole thing? Really? Pay attention Think about this. Tell me in your mind, I mean, you don't have to say it out loud, but if you actually believe right in this moment, Jesus is coming tonight, what are you going to do today? I'm going to be on the phone calling friends and family, and I'm going to be posting stuff on my Facebook page, which I've been doing. I mean, I am going to be shouting from the mountaintops. Jesus is coming. It's very near. It's almost here. Are you ready? Do you believe in him? Will you call upon the name of the Lord so that he will save you? It says that at the close of this chapter, that's his, his ultimate, it's kind of the resounding symbol sound at the very end. He says, um, uh, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among survivors whom the Lord calls.
Amazing. All right. 1 to 11. Yes. Yes. That's it. Prash. Good job. How did you find that? Okay. He's got a lot on the webpage, and he's a, he is, I wouldn't call him just a prophecy teacher. I think his emphasis is more on understanding the Hebrew mind and the Hebrew thinking and the history of Israel. And so he takes in, because of his language skills and because of his understanding about Israel as a nation, because because he himself is Jewish, he's got all this background information. He is just loaded with I don't remember that part. P R A S C H. Yeah. Jacob. Yeah, I should remember that. Jacob. And he says everything first in Hebrew and then repeats it in English and then he repeats it in Hebrew and then he repeats it in English and then he repeats it. So he's, very, he's like me, he repeats a lot. So sometimes before he gets to the end of the sentence, you've forgotten what he started out with. <laughs> he is really, really. Take, when you listen to him, have a pad of paper and a pencil handy. Or sit at your computer so you can type it real quickly. Because he, he loads you with insights. And when he took, took us to that Matthew verse, he didn't even say where it was, but just that Jesus had said it, so then I had to find it myself. And I did. But still, I mean, sometimes he doesn't actually give you the reference where you can find it. He's operating from the um, on the level that he's working with people who have some experience in the word of God and have a pretty good measure of information. And what he's doing is filling in all the extra details. So he is a person who helps ice the cake once the cake is baked. Right. I love that kind of teacher, though, because they're hard to find. There are a lot of teachers who, like me, can help you build a cake. So you kind of get all the real basics out of the way. I'm a basic builder person, teacher. But he's the guy that ices the cake, and you're, you feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant, sort of. But he's really, really good. All right, paragraphs, 1 to 11. What do we see there? What's going on in 1 to 11? Okay, say, give me your verse. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So let's try to. That's excellent, and you're on the right track. So now let's let's give you a verse that actually does that for you. What do we? What do you see in those first eleven verses? You give me some other insights. What do you see being said there? We. It's described in verse one and two. How is it described? Okay. Okay, that was one of the first things we did. We looked at the trumpets. Let's go ahead and do that. Since you brought that one up, that's good. P E T S, the trumpets. So we did a topical study on that. We looked at Joel uh, 2. 1 and 2, which is actually 1 through 11, I mean, if you keep it all together. And we also looked at Joel 2.15, which is 12 to 17. And in there, what did we learn about trumpets in there? That the one that's going on in Joel 2, what, what kind of a trumpet is it? What's happening there? 
What, actually, there's a word that's used in there, right? What does he say to sound? Sound and alarm. So it's an alarm. It's sound and alarm. And why is it an alarm? What is, what is the alarm about? It's just what Lisa was saying, right? There's an army coming. What else? What's going to happen with that army when they come? There's going to be devastation. Did you notice how they talked? Remember last week when I was telling you about Edom and um, that during uh, the war uh, with the Holocaust that he took his Bosnian force and, and made them in the, fort, uh, the shape or the form of an apex and the, the tip of the sword was those, that elite group which were the Edomites historically, and he would go through this, the uh, nations and every, or, or the lands, and anywhere he went, it was like an arrow piercing right through things, like, like a knife slicing through butter, right? A hot knife through butter, and he would just go right through and do that. And so does that not sound a lot like what here? It talks about before them, what was the earth like? Like Eden, beautiful, green, lush, growing things, being fruitful. Do, do we see that going on in Israel right now today? Are they not prospering? Are they not growing? Are they not? I mean, they have all these irrigation systems. Anywhere they put water, things bloom. It's an amazing thing. And yet it says in this day, this army is going to come through, and what's going to be left behind them? Total devastation. That's an, that right there, get your mind wrapped around that. That's what's going to occur, literally, reality, in Israel in the end times. When these days come, there is going to be an army that is going to come through and absolutely devastate everything that's on their land. Um, whose army is this? The Lord's army. So what does that tell you about this? Yet is God that's sovereign over it. So when he says he's relenting of evil, what he's saying is those, those um, destroyers are permitted to destroy, correct? That it's the permissive will of God that's taking place at that time. Why is God doing this to Israel? Why will God do this in that day? Okay, so his point is not destruction, but what? Repentance and life for them, right? All right, so we see in chapter 1 then, concerning that day, is there going to be anything like it? Never, never anything like it before or after, right? Mm-hmm. It actually means terrifying. Yes. It isn't, when we say the awesome day of the Lord, we think it's the fire with joy. And no, when we think, oh, this is going to be really awesome, right? No. <laughs> awesome is, yeah, that kind of awesome is not a good, a good awesome, okay. Awesome God, you should really be like, no, I don't want to see that. Exactly. When they say in verses 4 to 11 that it's the, the Lord utters his voice before his army then, in essence, what is being said there about that army? 
that God is the one directing it. God is the one dictating what's going to happen in that day. So as devastating as it is and as horrifying as the whole thing is, this is God doing this. And his ultimate goal, according to the conclusion of this chapter, is that they would do what? Return to him and call upon the Lord. Just as he says over here, he wants them to wake up and cry out to the Lord. Even now, repent, because strong is he who carries out his word. All right, so that's 1 to 11. Then let's go to the next one, Um, 12 to 17. Now, first of all, tell me this. Never anything like it. What time frame are we talking about there? Where, where does this 1 to 11 fit on our timeline? All the way at the end. And that day of the Lord, right? Oops. Okay, the day of the Lord or the tribulation. So this is kind of like a secondary title that I'm just showing you so that you would know when you look at verses 1 to 11, this is where it fits is in in this time frame up here on your timeline. Okay, all right, now let's go to 12 to 17. Now where are we in time? Yeah, so he's saying even now, even now return. So where does even now fit? Uh, 12 to 17, okay. Because, okay. Um, she says you can use the black bolded markers on here and here's here's what I'm going to show I'm going to let me let's just walk through it Uh, 12 13 and 14 he's talking about repent right come back to me return to me who knows that God will relent right relent meaning he will withhold those judgments against you correct and then he says blow the trumpet in Zion and do what consecrate a fast who's going to consecrate the fast and when the priests are going to do that and when we're not if you're going to put it on a time time frame where does it go well it starts right here doesn't it even now repent and how long does that go on how long is he allowing us to repent All the way until the time when he brings about that tribulation. So the very interesting thing about that is verses 12 to 17 is an even now moment. And it includes you and I in our, in our present situation. I get the same thing in 12 through 17. Okay. Yep. And it's all about what subject? Repenting, right? Repenting and coming back to me. And, and the way that you come back to me is through this solemn assembly that you're going to call and therefore then you're going to humble yourself before God, right? Your heart is going to be rend and not your clothing. There you go. So now we have verse 18. Okay, so even now return 
right? And rend your clothing, not your garments. Blow a trumpet. Proclaim a solemn assembly. So let's talk about the trumpets again. So in, so in 2.15, he see, we see another trumpet, right? Correct? Okay, so what does he say in, in 15? What kind of a trumpet is it, and what is its purpose? That's right. It's to proclaim... to proclaim a solemn assembly. So what does this tell you at this point about the subject of trumpets in the word of God? They're used for different things. Yep. They are, they are distinguishable for different things, but they all have a designed purpose. So when you, we went back, we looked in Numbers 10 and 29 and 31. So kind of on the, on the whole, what did you learn about trumpets in, the, in those Numbers verses? We did 10, uh, 29, and 31. What did you learn? Okay, was it third? Yeah, third. Uh huh, okay. Yeah, and it's very interesting because it sounds to me like from the way that they were talking and even kind of in some of the instructions that were being given there that each of the sounds were distinguishable. Um, do you guys remember one of those old uh, Walt Disney's where the father, oh, how about on um, The Sound of Music when the father has different whistle sounds for each of the kids? And he blow the, remember that? He blow, blow the whistle and each kid would come out of their door when they heard their whistle. Okay, so I had, that kind of popped into my mind, that kind of thing, where the people apparently understood and knew the different sounds, the different pitches and the different types. And he says sometimes one horn would sound, sometimes two would sound. Sometimes it had to do with the whole congregation ga gathering. Sometimes it was just a call for the, the leaders, right? So that was kind of cool, interesting to see, because I do know that there's a, a verse that some people... Um, lay their hat on saying that's how they know for sure that the rapture isn't until all the way into the tribulation era is because and then the, the, the last trumpet shall sound and so they go to the book of Revelation they pull out the last trumpet which is is the seventh trumpet right and, and for those of us who have studied no that's mid-trib right and it's just before the bowls start to be poured out. And so they lay their hat on the fact that that's talking about that trumpet. What do we see here at this point? There is no way of knowing if it's that trumpet that's being spoken of. So you have to take, that might be one point that you want to consider when you're trying to determine where do you think the rapture of the church occurs, but you can't hang your hat on it being that trumpet at that time, and therefore, absolutely, you're locked into mid-trib for a trumpet. Because the sounding of the last trumpet does not necessarily mean that. What's the other thing that we learned about the trumpet? Besides the fact that each trumpet has a designed purpose, um, did you learn or see anything about who is permitted? Only the sons of Aaron. So this was a, was a, a defined... Um, priestly duty, right? 
In many ways, you might call this a holy article. Yes. You would call, and if it's a holy article and only the priests are to do it, why? What is the point of that? Okay. If you let your grandkids play with that horn, what happens? Oh, yeah. The kids would be running through going, do, 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 all day long and say, see them run. Isn't that funny? Ha, ha, ha. But because it was designated and it reserved as a priestly duty, then, then the, the result of that is that when those horns did sound, what would happen? Yeah. People would really come to attention and to an alertness. They would hear that and they immediately their ears would perk up. I tell you what, in our generation of horns and sounds and dings and whistles, and we're, we're almost tone deaf, aren't we? I feel like spiritually we're tone deaf too. God is telling us in his word, I am sounding the alarm. I am unfolding history before your eyes and you are so tone deaf spiritually, you are so dulled to the knowledge of my word that you don't even recognize it. Now, that is not true of our group. I mean, we ha if anyone is alert and is paying attention, it is you all. You're studying it. You're becoming familiar with it. And the more familiar with it, the better you are, you are going to be equipped to help others as well. But I can tell you that the world on the whole and the church on the whole is tone deaf to the, to the sound of God's horns. The things that are happening in our global world today, you should be able to open your eyes as these prophet teachers that we've talked about the last three or four weeks, um, they, are, they are literally, what's the right word? They're giddy like a little child on Christmas morning. There are so many things happening prophetically that are being fulfilled right now, and we are so close to the in time actually occurring. They are literally stopping their routine te teaching and preaching in their churches to give prophetic updates week by week by week now. There's this one guy that's out of um, uh, Hawaii, Farrar. Yeah. And so these teachers are alert. Thank God that the Lord has given us some people who that's their basically their mission in life is to pay attention to these these prophetic things you and i i think as we are going through what we're going through right now and as we eventually get if we're still here <laughs> in two years when we get to it we're going to do the the end times teaching again we're going to do daniel and then revelation to lay it all out so that you're really familiar with it and i would greatly encourage that you drag every person in that you can this is a teaching the church needs today, and we need to, to train them up. And you may have to be the example for them. You may have to be the one that sits there and says, see, I'm doing it. You can do it too, right? Um, we need to be paying attention to the sounds of the trumpets that God is blowing. All right, now let's go to the next one. Even now, so this is the present tense in 12 to 17. The next one starts in 18 and runs through uh, 27. What is going on in that section? That's right. There's so many verses or so many words. I just put the Lord will have pity. 
because if you think about what's going to be going on in that day, right? And then Israel will, what will happen to Israel after that? When God, once God has pity and he has rescued them and he will have put them back on their land, he will have done as he says at the end of Obadiah, his kingdom will have been established, which takes us into God's kingdom there in chapter, we see Obadiah 21 on there. When that occurs, then what does God say about his, his people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that an amazing thought that one day God is going to, to uh, basically vindicate his own holy name? How is putting Israel back on their land and making them never to be a reproach again, a vindication of God, his name. Yeah. Right, right. So as they're going through these days here, when they're going through the turmoil here, the world whose eyes are, are closed, their ears are stopped up, they're going to look around and literally be giddy about the fact that Israel is under so much duress. They're going to see the nations coming against them and the, and the destruction, not, but not only of Israel, but of the whole world. But for, there's going to be such a delight in their hearts that Israel is getting theirs. And we know that the source of it from what we looked at Obadiah, these nations that are coming against him, one in particular is who? Edom, the people of Edom, who we now know are, sadly, the Palestinians. And it does not mean that God hates the Palestinians. What God hates is sin. What God hates is rebellion. God desires that all men be saved. So his greatest desire is that they would come to know him, that they would bow their knee to him. But there are many, sadly, that will not. And God will prove himself to be true. He will prove that when he speaks, it's so, that it's just, that it's right, and that he does exactly as he says. And in doing all that, God, again, will prove to the world that he is the Lord, the Almighty. Yes. 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 So ultimately, what do we see in those? How, what is the picture that's painted for us in those verses from 18 to 27? What, what geographically is going on around? What's going on for Israel at, at that time? Yeah, well, he's going to, okay, okay, yes, he will. He will uh, remove them from the northern border, and he will drive them out. That's in verse 20. Let's, let's do that one separate. Um, maybe I should do this 18 to 20. I'm going to break it down. I'm going to do 18 to 20, and then I'm going to do 
21 to 27. So because in a way you're right, we kind of need to break down that one little piece in there because 18 to 20, what is that time frame on our, on our, in, our, uh, in our event of things that are going on? What's going on there in 18 to 20? That's exactly right. So the Lord is going to be zealous, right? When it talks about him literally uh, removing those armies off the land, that apparently is after they've been on the land and done their devastation. So at what time do you think that's going to fit on our timeline up here if you have to pick the day, in this day of Lord? And it's actually right here at the end when Jesus returns, Right? And he is zealous for his people. Correct? Next week, we're going to do a little more study on this, and we'll come back to this and fill in a little bit more points on that. But the idea then that this right here, the Lord will be zealous. I'm going to put on here sixth bowl. Or it could be seventh bowl. Right in there, both of them probably, six and seven bull. We're going to see the return of Christ. And when he comes back, what did Revelation tell us about that? When Jesus returns on his white horse, what does he return and do in the immediate arrival? He makes war with the nations. And it talks about him destroying all the, the kings of the earth and all the peoples of the earth who are coming up against Israel at that time. And then what happens to them and their dead bodies? The birds of the air come and eat their flesh. There was a there was a place in here where it talks. Was it in here that talks about the stench of their? Yes, its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up. For it it has done great things. Now, great does not mean great good. It means great as in awesome, or terrifying. Right, and that to me is Revelation nineteen twenty one. If you just want to put a reference in there for yourself, because talking about the stench going up, it's talking about the killing of all these people in that day of war, and that's when Jesus returns. Okay, so that's that's exactly right. So you're starting to get your identifying markers down as to where things go excuse me, on a timeline of events. So when he returns, the Lord will be zealous. That's when he return, when Jesus returns to earth. And then 21 to 27, the Lord will have pity and Israel will be restored and never a reproach against. So starting in 21 down to 27, what do you see going on there? And where do you think that is on the timeline? Okay, and as you look at this, what do you see going on here? That's right. He talks about withholding the rain for those who, who don't actually come in and give their offering or worship him. Yes. Okay. And also that word vindication kind of makes me think of how he says, I will vindicate my holy name. So it, to me, they kind of tie together with that vindication. Uh -huh. And he calls them again, my people. 
Very good. And now they are my people. Okay, so we are going to put up here then, this is talking about then God's kingdom. This is called, this is the millennial reign of Christ, right? God's kingdom. And it's a 1,000 year reign upon the earth. And so we're seeing that's when this right here happens. We'll put on here millennial reign. Okay. All right, 21 to 27. Now we have 28. We're almost done. We've done pretty good. 28 to 32. What do you see? What is the major subject there? I will pour out my spirit. Um, I will pour out my spirit. on all who call on the Lord. Okay. Now, interestingly, because again, anytime you're looking at prophetic uh, utterances like this, there can be application of it in a present or in a future, correct? So you and I, how, when do we know that the first uh, portion of this fulfillment took place? In Acts chapter 2 and also Acts chapter, the first one in 2 was Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, right? Who received the Holy Spirit on that day? All those in Jerusalem, right? So it was the Jews. About eight years later, who did Peter and go to and then had to give a defense to the council the Gentiles? So, so in Acts chapter 10, another falling of the Holy Spirit. And yet we also know that at the end of the age, what is God going to pour out on Israel? His spirit. So what we, can, what we can see then by looking at all of these events that we know absolutely they're going to occur. There was a pouring out at Pentecost. There was a pouring out on the Gentiles. And we also know prophetically God says, and in that day all Israel shall be saved. And he says in Zechariah, I will pour out my spirit upon them in that day and, they will call, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And we're going to look at that uh, more in detail next week. But what I want to point out to you today is that this is a, a repetitive pouring out. So what do we look, when we look at these last section here, the last part of it, what is God saying in that, in, in relationship to everything else that's being said? I'm going to pour out my spirit on all who will call on the Lord. What has been our message in this book? Repent now, because Why? Strong is he who carries out his word, and I am coming again. It is very near. And so he is making a plea that at any time in history, there should be a, there should be a repentance of all people who actually call on the name of the Lord. How were people in the Old Testament saved before they had the pouring out of the Holy Spirit? That's by faith. How did we learn that? Abraham. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the pouring out of the Spirit did not occur at that time. Why not? Right. Okay. So, the difference between the covenant with Abraham and the covenant that we now enjoy is 
the Holy Spirit was promised in the new covenant. The new covenant simply had not been enacted yet. But once the new covenant came, what was the promise of it? The coming of the Holy Spirit. So we looked then at the coming of the Holy Spirit. So pouring out of the, the Spirit, we've got the, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. And then we will one day have all Israel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. On all Israel, um, well, I was, yeah, where is it? It will come about after this. Oh, yeah, because it will come about after this. Let me do it this way. All mankind. That covers it all, Correct. So we have a, a, a large statement. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And then what happens is in, in the, the day of Pentecost, Peter pulls this quote out. And he really he does it because it's a point of reference that they should be familiar with. They have, they have understood that the coming of the new covenant, there would be a pouring out of God's spirit. This is something they've been taught through. Ezekiel, they've been taught through Jeremiah, they've been taught even through Isaiah. They knew that the Spirit of God was going to be poured out in, in the day when the new covenant came. I will, it, I will enact a new covenant, not like the old one, right? The one which you broke. I will remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. So that's all been taught to them. And Joel then pulls that out as a remembrance or as a reminder to them. And when he says, look, they're not drunk, Look around you. Is this not what was said by the prophet Joel? And he quotes him. And he says, in that day, this is what will happen. And here it is. The quote is, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Um, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants, meaning the Gentiles. So you see, he even indicates that there's a distinction between the Jews and then the Gentiles. Your servants are the Gentiles he's making reference to. And he says, and I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now think about this. In the days of the Jews, for the prophet here, Joel, also amongst many, to say to them, by the way, the new covenant, it's not reserved for just Israel. Your servants are going to get to enjoy this. How many times did God tell them that? When he said to Abraham, I am going to do this for you. And did he not say to Abraham in Genesis 12, who's going to be affected? Who's going to receive a blessing? All nations of the earth shall be blessed in you. So this message about all nations has been given to them very early on, but it gets passed over very quickly. It's kind of like it's there, but they ignore it. And they just move on. But here we see it in Joel where he says, you and your sons and your daughters and also your servants... And so we see Jew and Gentiles. But then he goes on and he talks about a different time, does he not? When he starts in verse 30, what is the time reference there? It's talking about that there's going to be some things that are going to happen. And what is, in this case, he's speaking about the day of the Lord in a slightly different context. But how does he describe it? Blood, fire, columns of smoke, the sun be darkened, right? The moon into the blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. What does that sound like that we've just looked at? It looks all the way like it's back in Joel 2. 
Verse 2, a day of thickness and dark clouds, right? Nothing like it ever before. Um, okay, yes. Yeah. And when they come and talk to you about them, it's kind of one of those, I have the same feeling. Um, I'm sure that the Israelites are, well, wait a second. We're the people of God. Right. We can't be the people of God. Right. We're yeah, we're the Christians. What do you mean you're telling me? Yeah, right. But they keep, I mean, you just, it's one right after another. Most of them have come to faith because of a dream, a vision, yes. or a, a fulfillment of a prayer. Yes. God uses the particularly dreams of visions in the, that part of the world because that is the only way to get the message through to them. He also uses a lot of the sign gifts like healings and speaking in tongues and so forth when you're in foreign lands. You see that a lot. In America, you don't see it as much a correctly used you see it falsely used but you don't see it correctly used because it's not required do we need someone to speak in tongues when we all speak English and we have the written word of God before us in English I mean we don't need that to, for God to reach us if your heart is open to God he can reach you through English and through the, the written word um, but that doesn't mean that tongues don't take place in this in the states sometimes in a, in correct ways but it's far more rare it is mostly used in those places where the language, ha you have to have the, the one who speaks in tongue because otherwise you can't get them the message. So here we see in 28 to 32 a promise then of this coming Holy Spirit. And so where does that all go on a, on a time frame? Well, it began at Pentecost. So we have the Holy Spirit coming here, right here. The coming of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Number one on the Jews, then number two on the Gentiles. And then one day there's going to be a pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all Israel. It's a specific day that Zechariah 13, Z -E, hold on, Zechariah 13 speaks about. In that day, I will pour out my spirit on the house of David and on the house of Israel, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. I do think we're going to get into that part of it a little bit more this week in, in your homework.